0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 19. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to number by their divisions all the men in Israel, 20 years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Elizur, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shumiel, son of Jerishadai. From Judah, Nashon, son of Aminadab; From Issachar, Nethanel, son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishema, son of Amahud, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Padassar, from Benjamin, Abaddon, son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahiazer, son of Amishadai, from Asher, Pagael, son of Akran, from Gad, Eliasaph, son of Deuel, from Neptali, Ahira, son of Enon. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been given, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name. One by one, as the Lord commanded Moses, and so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, uh, before we step into a time of teaching together, I'm going to ask if we would honor this silence for just a moment uh, where you are, whatever you've carried in here this morning. And then I'll offer a prayer and we'll continue on. God, from where we are to where you might be found, we want to cross over. And even in these next few minutes, as we encounter your story, the way you've been working with humanity all of these years, help us to cross over into understanding, open our hearts, open our minds that we might receive what you have to offer in christ's name amen so jessica thank you for the reading uh when we set out this morning and realized we were going to be reading numbers one numbers one is just a whole list of names we thought who is brave enough uh or just wouldn't say no and jessica's name came up so thank you jessica if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers uh, chapter one, which is where we're going to begin. This is the second Sunday in a Lenten focus on the book of Numbers. Last week, we talked about Jesus in the wilderness as a prelude to the book of Numbers, and now we are in the book proper, and it is a very weird book. Uh, so I'll give a little bit of background today, but we're going to be in this all the way up until Palm Sunday, and then we're going to jump back into the book of Numbers after uh, the second Sunday of Easter through Pentecost. So... Uh, <laughs> into June even. This will be our book. So we don't have to cover everything today, just a little bit. But first, I want to start uh, with a story from maybe like three years ago or so. Uh, that's my hand. And I'm not strangling this goose, baby. just want to be clear about that. But I was driving on the road with a friend of mine uh, years ago, and it was this road that kind of curved around by a lake. This is in Oklahoma when I lived there. And we saw there's all of this traffic in the road. And turns out, that there has been a family of geese who are crossing the road. And apparently you can see like on the very top of this picture that there are a couple of large, full-grown parent geese and some of their babies. Uh, But this one, it's a gosling, right? That's what we call little geese. Is that fair? A gosling? Uh, There was one that was on the road. And so all of the traffic had stopped. And uh, there was kind of, you know, weaving around this little gosling and uh, my friend and I, we were both pastors and we were channeling who later would become uh, Cynthia in my life, our resident sort of contemplative and St. Francis lover of all animals and thought we got to do something about this goose. And, uh, but the goose didn't know we were there to help it. Right. Uh, so we get like a piece of cardboard and we're, we're pushing this little gosling toward the curb and <laughs> And it's running from us because that's what it's supposed to do. Meanwhile, the parents have caught wind of what we're up to. And they have no idea that we mean good for this gosling. So then they start freaking out and barking at us like only geese can do. And all of us have a healthy fear of geese because either we or someone we know has been bitten in the stomach by a goose while feeding it out of the kindness of our hearts. When I was like five, I had a bag of bread and I was feeding the geese and the geese like there's all the bread in that bag and it bit me. And they have been enemies of mine up to this point. But I felt involved with this gosling. So anyway, we're scooting along. And the the thing is stupid. And it jumped in a drain culvert. Instead of jumping over into the grass. Right, I know. But it's not that deep. So I so I'm reach down, right, there's traffic kind of flying around us and I grab the goose. And so this is what you see right here is me with the baby, and the parents are losing their minds. I look and there's like three or four other goslings that they have. I think, you've got enough. You don't need this fourth one. <laughs> but they they were committed to getting all of the babies safe to the lake. I've thought about this these parents, these goose parents all week about what it means to count what might be lost. And what does it mean that as Israel is setting off on its journey into this promised land, they stop and they take account of one another before they begin. Now, this count takes place... Uh, Time-wise, numbers is strange. So don't, if you read it, by the way, I always tell you, like, sit with the book if we're in it for a while and just read it through a few times. This is one of those books that if you read it through several times, it may be the last time you read the Bible for a while because it is so strange and disorienting. So uh, read it with a friend. Also, if you're available, you can come read with us on Thursdays at noon because we uh, study the text in the chapel every Thursday at noon. We'd love to have you there. We're trying to orient ourselves. Exodus ends chapter 40. And then Leviticus is just this, uh, this big expansive text of the law. The, The narrative does not really move forward in the book of Leviticus. It's like a pause that happens on Mount Sinai where they're handed the law. So the numbers picks up the narrative. And if you read the text, it's about one month of time has elapsed between when they're at Sinai receiving the law and then when they prepare to set out to the promised land, that's where we are. Uh, Time, though, is this strange and fluid concept because from Numbers 1 to Numbers 26, 38 years pass. And they pass if you read the text without a ton of commentary about the way that time is moving forward. And not only do they pass fairly quickly, but something happens between Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. So Numbers 1, you heard this morning, it's this census that's taken, this counting of the people. And... Uh, if you go ahead to Numbers 26, there's this verse that gets tucked away in verse 63 and 64. 38 years later, here's what the next census says. After recounting all of these names, it said these were those enrolled by Moses and Eleazar the priest who enrolled the Israelites in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. This is the second count that happens. Among these. There was not one of those enrolled by Moses and Aaron the priest who had enrolled the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai. 38 years, and everybody has sunk into the sand. That should give you a sense of what kind of book it is we're grappling with. There's this hope in the beginning of the journey. There is this swell of pride and emotion. And then chapters later... There is this subtly, almost unnamed tragedy at the source of this journey. What does it mean to keep count, especially count of how many have been lost? So this is part of the book of Numbers. Counting itself is a strange activity. How many people have ever, like, uh, well, Cindy and Dave, y'all are about to take a bunch of seventh graders, right? How many? Forty, and when you come back, how many seventh graders do you have to have? (laughs) It depends on how the week goes. goes. But you know that feeling, at least. So whenever I've traveled with uh, youth, especially, or or if we've done any kind of uh, help with, like uh, my daughters in second grade, and my son is in sixth grade, so if we do field trips, we count a lot, right? You count every time you get to a place, you count every time you leave a place, and you have to have the same number of kids. I'm still not clear if it has to be the same kids. It just has to be the same number of kids when you leave and enter each place. There's all of this counting that happens whenever there is like something at risk. Somebody wandering off or someone sneaking off if it's seventh graders probably, right? They're not getting lost accidentally. They're getting lost on purpose. Counting happens for the Israelites four times, twice in the book of Exodus and twice in the book of Numbers. There are these censuses that are taken. Uh, In Exodus 12, the people are counted as they are getting ready to leave Egypt. And then a little bit later uh, in Exodus 30, they're counted again as they're preparing to build the tabernacle and they're taking up offerings. Then you just heard the count in Numbers 1. And then again in Numbers 26, there's another census that's taken. I'm reminded of those trips that we take together where we keep counting the kids each time we arrive and each time we leave at a place. There seems to be some kind of communal care that's taking place. Now, Jewish scholars uh, they see all of these counts and they ask the question: Why so many times? Is God forgotten some names? Is God forgotten the number? Uh, what's the reminder necessary for? And uh, one commentator's name is Rashi. Says, "Well, counting is a sign of affection. It's the way that a loving God keeps track of God's children, just like chaperones on a field trip, or just like a mother goose with the goslings trapped in the road. There is this kind of." ache and care when you've got this many people you are responsible for and if one is lost you would notice so that's one answer for counting but the other one is that counting can be a sign of affection or a sign of warning there's another part in the book of exodus when moses is told to count the people and then the text says uh count these people and then make sure that they all bring an offering And you want to make sure when you count them that they bring an offering because the offering will protect them from somehow being subject to a new plague. Somehow for the Israelites being seen by God and counted among God's people wandering in the wilderness is to be brought both under affection and then under great danger and risk. At the same time, there is this tension at play with being seen and known by God in the wild places. And so counting ends up functioning in both of these ways. Because it turns out that counting and counting are not always the same thing. And this gets us into Numbers 1 today. So, the book of Numbers chooses a really specific way to keep count ...of the Israelites. And it's very similar to the way you would keep track of kids on a field trip. There are other ways, though, to count. To name a mass of people. And one of those exposes you to affection... ...and one of those exposes you to a new kind of risk. Now, ostensibly, on the, on the surface of things... ...the reason that the Israelites are being counted in the wilderness... ...in Numbers 1 is... Well, who gets counted? Who remembers from the reading? Just the fellows... And why is it just the fellows? The it's because of the military, right? These are the folks who might be able to fight. So already in the text, there is this tension at play between life that is blossomed. This large nation is a sign of God's provision, God's blessing. But then also let's make sure to count how many people we can send into battle because somebody is going to die and we need to know how many people we can lose and still win. So yeah, the men are the ones who are counted. Uh, Pharaoh kept count. In the early part of the book of Exodus, had noticed that the Israelites were growing in number, and this growth, this expansion became threatening. He was keeping count. In a very different way than Numbers 1 counts, but all the same. He was counting to figure out how big the threat would be. Much, much later, early parts of our gospel... Caesar takes account, takes his own kind of census for the same sort of reasons. How many people can fight in Caesar's army and how much money can we extract from these folks? So a census is taken, and that's what drives Jesus' parents to their uh, family's land in Bethlehem. There are all kinds of ways to keep count and keep track of one another, and not all of these are equal. For instance, there is this bizarre story uh, it shows up in the book of Samuel, and it shows up in the book of Chronicles. First uh, Chronicles chapter 21. It says that Satan shows up to bug King David and the Israelites and incites King David to take account of the nation. And so King David tells one of his officers, says, I need you to go through the villages, through all of the nation of Israel, and count And this guy named Joab says, we really shouldn't do that. And David says, go count the people. Let's figure out how strong we are, how mighty we are. So Joab goes and he does the count, and it ends up a bunch of people die because it turns out that the way that David decides to count is the wrong kind of counting. And it invites a plague, and it invites destruction. And it is born, the text says, out of some kind of satanic impulse to shore up strength and power by proving that they have a large enough army. It said in Egypt that if one of the slaves working the bricks died, nobody noticed. They were just a number in the mass. But if a brick fell, then the Egyptians wept. When Israel was in Egypt, they were not each an individual. They were all a collective, a mass. And no one person mattered. They only mattered in as much as they could get done for the empire. And so part of being counted over and over again is to be renamed as a nation of individuals, not as this mass of slaves. Because this is the way that Egypt understood them. Not as people, but as tools. And the things that they were making had more value than those people. Here is the way that numbers Counts. On the right, you have the Hebrew script. On the left, you have the transliterated Numbers chapter one. It's the same language in Numbers chapter twenty-six, verse two. Take a census of the whole congregation of the Israelites in their clans by ancestral houses, according to the number of names every male individually. This is the language for to take a census. Seu et rosh. What it means literally is to lift the head. It's a very strange way to talk about counting. And the Hebrew language is not short on words for counting. And there are lots of words that were much more specific than this idiomatic lifting of the head. But this is the way that the text decides. To tell the story about how 600,000 people are counted. Not just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but this one. And then, and you. Over and over again. This seeing one another, this conferring of identity and value. It's a slow way to count and it's a methodical way to count, but it is a personal and intimate way to see the nation. So that difference between counting in a way that is affectionate and counting in a way that is utilitarian and dangerous is to see each of us so that we're able to see all of us. Or to subsume everyone and their own identity into a faceless and nameless mass. Even here on Sunday mornings, and uh, if you look up, Hey, Terry, Terry's in the balcony. And what are you doing right now, Terry? Terry's counting. Yeah, because we, uh, each Sunday, we're curious uh, who is here and who's not. I actually have this, like, intense struggle and intertension with the numbers that we receive to figure out kind of what's happening in our congregation because they don't actually tell me very much about who's here, why they're here, who's gone, why they're unable to be here on that Sunday. It is dangerous because it could subsume even this group into a faceless and nameless mass. And that's actually not... Near as interesting, right, as Becky or as Tom or as Lisa or as Marion or as Christina, right, or as Art and as Kathy. That's the way to understand your presence is, is lifting the head. Holding all of you by holding each of you. And this is the way that Moses and Aaron are taught to count. It turns out that. God's relationship to the people in the wilderness is markedly different than Pharaoh's relationship to them in slavery. And this is what the wilderness does, is it teaches the people that God is different. God is other. And that the way that they relate to this power is not like the way they related to their old power source, their old oppressor. It takes so long for them to get this. And it begins by each of them being seen for who they are. This is just the way that God works. If you look up in the sky, if you drive up the two into the mountains in it's nighttime and you look up, you can see so many more stars. And I don't know what the name of any of them are. The names that we've given them, the patterns that they make in the sky. The psalmist talks about God's relationship to nature and says uh, that God not only can count the stars, but God knows their names. I assume that their names are Jennifer and Thurman, by the way. That feels right to me. This is God's relationship to creation. How much more to us is the question. To answer that, we have to go back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. This word, "zelem," is the word for image. It says in Genesis 1, that we are made in the image of God. That is the way that humanity is created, is endowed, is understood. And this language of image bearers of the divine, uh, this is actually politically loaded language because at the time, in this area of the world, there were all kinds of competing narratives for how the world was created and what it meant to create the world. And the one who is the image bearer of God was not me and you, Hans, or any of us here. The image bearer of the divine was the king the ruler, that was the one who was known as the Zelem Elohim. And you would put a statue of this king or this emperor in a city square, and everybody would know that the way that you get to God is by going through the power source, the one who is the reflection of the divine. And so the king or the emperor, whoever the ruler is at the time, they are the ones, and only them are understood as image bearers of the divine. Everyone else works for the divine. (laughs) Literally. It helps make sure that people stay in their class, stay in their hierarchy. So then, when the Israelites bust on the scene with their own creation story that is full of meaning, that challenges all of these competing narratives, God says, let's create humanity. Not just the king, but everyone in the image of the divine. And so then each of us gets to mediate God's presence into creation. One author says, this is a democratization of the image of God. This is a flattening and equaling so that all of humanity is endowed with royalty. Later on, God will call this nation known as Israel a kingdom of priests one to another, all of them. So when we are counted in a way, when we are seen in our deepest primal belonging to God, this lifting of the head. It's this reminder that each of us is created in the divine image. And there is no slavery, no oppression that can take that away. And if you have forgotten, then you will be reminded over and over again that you belong to God. This is not how it's always been. And over time, in small and in large ways this deep truth has been stripped from our memories. There are other ways that people have been counted. One of the cruel tricks of the show of the Holocaust was stripping people of their names and giving them a number. What is the opposite of lifting of the head? It is this kind of world. It subsumes individuals into a mass and then assumes a kind of power over that mass that is deadly. But lest we think that this is a thing that just happened, right? This is the language that I've continually hear over and over again, that there are hordes, that there are invasions, that there are how many thousands, how many hundreds of thousands, and that all of these individuals are subsumed in such a way that obscures that divine image in each of us. Last week, all of us know um, about the killings, the shootings that happened in Christchurch, New Zealand. And there's been all kinds of counting that have happened in the midst of that tragedy. How many people have died? 50 and counting. How many people are injured? 50 and counting. And underneath this pain and this brokenness is a different kind of obsession with counting. Whose roots go deep, Actually, all the way back to those same Pharaoh impulses of fear over who belongs and who doesn't and the threat that large numbers might pose to the nation and stability, right? That was Pharaoh's concern. There are so many Israelites here now. There are so many of them. They are swarming. And if we don't take care of this problem, then they're going to mount a rebellion. That was Pharaoh's fear. We probably should put them in slavery so they don't get any ideas in their head. That is Pharaoh's impulse in the world. To see something that God would call blessed, be fruitful and multiply, and find there a curse or a danger so that fear and anxiety moves into the entire nation. It roots all over the world and also in this country here is something that we are continuing to name as white supremacy. And that language is obsessed with counting. You can hear it. Language of like, well, other types of people are going to outnumber the white majority and so this coming white minority is deeply terrifying in the same way that things scared pharaoh so we should keep count obsessive count and if our numbers are going down and their numbers are going up then that that poses some kind of existential threat and that kind of threat explodes into violence because there is a dangerous way to count, and there is an affectionate way to count. Are you with me? There are names for the Hebrew books of the Bible, the Torah. We know them as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but the Hebrew names for these books go by the first word and the first phrase of each of the books. And the book of Exodus is known as These Are the Names. It's a brilliant way to begin a book about a nation that didn't have a name. And then in their own liberation are counted in a way that they are seen as individuals, as those with worth again. And so the way that God tells the story of God's people is first by naming them. By calling them all the way up to their full dignity again. So I want to be careful this morning to hold in dignity and in honor those who have died. Particularly those who have died because of broken versions of this story we are still living out over and over again. So, in whatever way you've processed the news of violence out of New Zealand this week, I'm going to ask if you would just set those emotions here for a few minutes this morning. We're going to set the names of those who have died, the ones that we know in our midst. Some version of Sa'u at Rosh lifting the head and naming these as children of God, endowed with dignity and worth because God knows them and created them. I'm going to ask uh, Zach Hoover. who's been very helpful to me this week and just knowing how to posture myself as a pastor in this community, in this time, uh, if he would come up and read some of the names for us.
2: We know of 24 names of people who were murdered. I'm going to read their names and their age for those we know the age. Naeem Rashid age forty nine Talha Naeem Age twenty two Haji Daud Nabi age seventy one Abdus Samad age sixty seven Hosne Ara Parvan age forty two Arib Ahmed age twenty six Lilik Abdul Hamid age fifty eight Ata Elayan, age 33. Jahandad Ali, age 34. Maboob Harun, age 40. Amjad Hamid, age 57. Osama Adnan Abu Quake, age 37. Sohail Shahid, age 40. Abdul Fatah Kasim Al Daka Age fifty nine Ali El Madani age sixty five Kamel Darwish age thirty eight Munir Suleiman age sixty eight Ahmed Jamal Al Din Abdul Ghani Age sixty eight and those without ages known to us Ashraf al-Masri, Ashraf Morsi, Matiullah Safi, Gulam Hussein, Zishan Raza, Karam Bibi.
1: We also found out this morning uh, that a friend of ours who is one of our uh, guest musicians and drummers, uh, Dan, that his sister died this morning after a struggle with an illness, uh, 4.30 this morning. Uh, her name is Laura. And to add her name to the reading of these names. One of the wisdoms gleaned from the scriptures is that each of us is a universe of possibilities and potentiality. And so when one of us dies, it's like the entire world is destroyed. And it feels like that kind of apocalypse to God. There is this fear, right? There is this fear that God isn't noticing. That there are just so many of us, right? Just even in this room, there are so many of us, much less in creation, That how is God keeping track of our pain? How is God seeing us? Maybe God's not. Maybe this is slipping by God's notice. That's the deep fear. The New Testament tells this story, this set of stories about things that are lost and things that are sought after. And one of the stories is that there are all these sheep, right? and there are a hundred. And one of them... Wanders off, gets lost. And in counting, 97, 98, 99, I gotta go find the sheep. There is this awareness of what is not present. God is keeping count. God knows. one of you are lost. And many of us are lost. Maybe to ourselves, maybe to our neighbor, maybe to our past, maybe to our family. But the deep truth is we are not ever lost to God. Who's counting us in a way that we, we deeply hope is true. And seeing us in a way that we have a hard time doing for ourselves. there's this story in the new Testament, the last story this morning of uh jesus has been healing and as far as i can tell in reading the scriptures there's not a lot of times if any where jesus sees a bunch of six pe- sick people and just kind of like heals them all right in one fell swoop it's this sort of next or you're next and then you're, you're next like This sort of receiving line of seeing each and lifting each and healing those who would come forward. But at one point, he's gotten a bunch of crowds who are following him around because when you heal people, when you feed people, when you give people hope, they tend to stick around to see what else you're going to say and what else you're going to do. And it says that the crowd was growing almost violent in the way that it was pushing in on Jesus at this point in time. And there was this man named Jairus who had a daughter who was really sick. And somehow he gets Jesus' attention and says, you've got to come heal my daughter. I've heard what you do. And so Jesus is moving through this crowd, this unnamed mass that's been subsumed and pressing in, and sees this one. And on the way through this crowd, there's another woman, someone else's daughter, who's been sick for a long time. And she reaches out, she grabs the edge of Jesus' cloak. In this last-ditch effort to receive some power, to receive some notice, turns out that Jesus does notice and says, somebody touch me. And the disciples say, everybody's touching you, Jesus. That's why you seem so uncomfortable right now. And he says, power has gone out. And the woman who's been healed comes forward and she is fully seen. And Jesus says, it's your faithfulness that has saved you. And then the story moves, and he raises this daughter, Jairus' daughter, to life. Somehow, Jesus sees each of us in the midst of all of us, over and over again. It brings me back to those geese. Matthew's Gospel. As Jesus enters toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where this story comes to a climax. It's the power center of religion at the time. It's also the place where Jesus is moving to his own death. And he's standing at this one point looking out over the city. And this is what it says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is the pain of what it means to have the entirety of creation belong to you. Is this pain that Jesus feels in looking on Jesus' people and saying like that goose, right? Flipping out because one Of its babies was on the street and then in the gutter. And not leaving until that one was safe. Is Jesus standing over the city and over all of creation and saying, This is how wide and all of you can fit. This is the image of your God. At the beginning of the journey through the wilderness. Seeing each of you by name. Friends and family, this day, may you be reminded that you are children of God, endowed with the image of the divine as your birthright. And if anyone, even yourself, has taken it away, may you ask for forgiveness or may you forgive the other and then own this deep truth so that no one can tell you else about who you are. Whether you find yourself in the wilderness or in Jerusalem or in Pasadena or on a Sunday morning in this room, you will feel your head lifted and know that you are on God's side and God is on creation's side. For the healing of all of those who feel like they do not belong, would you pray with me? God, it's too much even for us to wrap our minds around just those in this room. A hundred or so of us who've gathered in this place. Our hope is that you can see past what we see. Our hope is that you can find what we find to be completely lost. Our hope is that you are constantly lifting our heads. Because God, you know that this world is a burden at times. And it bends us over in ways that deform our hearts, our souls, our bodies, our affections. Help us today to feel our deep and primal belonging to you as your children that we might take seriously and with great responsibility bearing your image into the world. Forgive us when we break it apart. Forgive those who have broken it apart. Forgive our silence when we don't know what to say. Forgive our lack of faith that you are putting this back together. Bring us back to you, God. This is our prayer. In the strong name of Jesus. Amen
2: and um.